0: The reading this morning from the Bible is from 1 Samuel 24. And you will see the words up there on the screen or join in with your Bibles as well. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he <coughs> said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. <coughs> Afterward, David was conscious str- stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the King of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? a flea, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands. But you did not kill me when a man finds his enemy does he let him get away unharmed may the lord reward you well for the way you treated me today i know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of israel will be established in your hands now swear to me by the lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family so david gave his oath to saul then saul returned home but David and his men went up to the stronghold.
1: Well, good morning again. Let me pray as we start this morning looking at this passage from 1 Samuel 24 uh, in our series that we're in together on the life of David, the once and future king, which we're doing because, as we've said over the last several weeks, there's more information about David in the Scriptures than any other person other than Jesus. And David is clearly established in the Scriptures as a forerunner of the Messiah. Many elements of David's life and kingship, eventual kingship, um, point toward the coming of Christ and the ministry of Jesus. So it's really important for us to know about David in order to understand in uh, the fullest way that we can the life and ministry of jesus let me pray lord i thank you for this morning this chance to be together to look at your word together i pray that you would strengthen us in it speak to us this morning holy spirit we pray open our hearts to receive your word and i pray that this would be a moment of transformation a moment of truth a moment of honesty uh, for each of us to encounter you to deal with you and to be transformed we pray in jesus name Amen. Amen. Well, as some of you will know, I've just been over in the UK at the Alpha Leadership Conference, uh, at the Royal Albert Hall, which was an incredible experience, although I came back sick. And a huge thanks to Linda for stepping in for me last week. Isn't she incredible? We have an amazing leader in Linda. She is awesome, and not just because she rescued me last week, but because she is wonderful. So you're watching at the moment, Linda, bless you. Um, I want to just take a moment to reflect on something that happened at the leadership conference which I found incredibly profound and powerful. Uh, One of the most moving and challenging moments was listening to the testimony of a North Korean sister uh, who is quite elderly now, yet she spent many years of her life in prison in North Korea. The first time because she was captured trying to leave the country, She was arrested, sent to prison, uh, which is a sentence of three years, and so she spent three years in prison. During that time, she had a dream about Jesus and gave her life to the Lord. She was released and attempted to flee the country again and was arrested again, but this time the authorities knew that she was a Christian. So when she was put back into prison, she was tortured for two years for information, although she was just a new Christian and had hardly any contacts in the in the Christian community, so it wasn't able to say anything. Um, as you can understand, she was incredibly distressed about her situation, crying out to God, saying the things that I'm sure all of us would say were we in her shoes. Why is this happening to me? Why have you done this to me? Why have you put me back in here? This is too hard. God, are you still with me? But the Lord spoke to her during her time in prison in that second experience that, like the Apostle Paul, he had put her in prison in order that she might reach the inmates there. She had been sent to prison as an assignment from the Lord. This was to be her church, and she was to be its pastor. Now, that changed her mind, and so she decided... Well, if this is the Lord's will, she will put all of herself into it. She will do the best that she can. Now, friends, I complain when I don't get a decent parking space. You know, come on, God, I prayed the parking prayer. Where's my parking space? Or I complain when my cup of coffee is not exactly as I would want it to be. Friends, I have no idea what it means to suffer for Jesus. So being under almost constant surveillance uh, in the prison, she quickly worked out that the only place that she could actually share her faith with the other inmates was in the toilet, because that was the one place, given that it was so foul, so disgusting, that was the one place that the prison guards would not go. They would not go into the toilet. So she would go in there with other inmates and tell them about Jesus while they're on the toilet. Connects interesting with our story this morning. She spent the next three years doing this, sharing her faith as quietly, as carefully, but as faithfully as she could. And by the end of her time there, she had a very small little community of disciples. Now, they couldn't worship or pray openly, so they would go off into the toilet together, three or four of them, spend a few minutes at a time praying and worshiping Jesus. That was their experience of church. That was all they had. That was their sanctuary. They had no Bibles, but they had the Holy Spirit, and they knew that Jesus was with them. Now, listening to that story, as I'm sure you can imagine, and hearing how horrible her experiences were, and yet being so challenged by her courageous determination to stay faithful to Jesus, to keep her heart right in the Lord despite what was going on, I found that so incredibly inspiring and challenging. Now after her talk, it was an incredibly moving moment, everyone in the Royal Albert Hall stood up and gave her 5,000 people, gave her a standing ovation for several minutes uh, and the, at the conclusion of her story, and of course she wept and she bowed and was over, overcome by, uh, by thankfulness, but you know that moment will pale in comparison to the reward that she will receive when she enters into her Father's glory. What an amazing Christian. What an incredible woman of God. But it left me asking a question about myself. Am I a good Christian? Or am I a bad Christian? How would I know? Are you a good Christian? Or are you a bad Christian? How would you know? Today, as we explore that very simple question, as we look at 1 Samuel 24, a moment, as we've heard, where David who has been on the run from Saul now for probably many months, maybe even years, is now living in the caves of En Gedi. I have a slide of those caves in Israel, which is down by the Dead Sea. He's now gathered a very small little army around him of other men, um, and incredibly, he has this moment, this opportunity to kill Saul. Uh, While Saul is relieving himself, no less, he has an opportunity to put an end to the persecution to take matters into his own hand and to put an end to it, to kill Saul, to claim the crown that is now rightfully his, as he's been anointed by Samuel to be the next king, to end the persecution, to end the suffering, and be free of Saul for good. He has an opportunity to do that, but he doesn't do it. Instead, he cuts a corner of Saul's robe, shows it to him later as the story goes, to show Saul that he had the chance to do it, but he didn't do it. He refuses to take matters into his own hands. He refuses to take revenge. Why? Why did David refuse to take revenge? Here's my question. Like our Korean sister being tortured in a North Korean prison, David has been forced to endure some truly terrible things. Things that, by rights, should have made him angry, embittered, disappointed, (laughs) resentful, frustrated with God. But they didn't. They didn't. Like our Korean sister, somehow David managed to keep his heart in the right place with the Lord. Somehow. How did he do it? And why did Saul go the opposite way? Why did Saul choose to destroy himself with envy and fear and anger and hatred? As we heard last week, life in Saul's palace had become impossible for David. Um, As Saul becomes more and more dangerous, right? He's hurling spears at David. He's trying to kill him. He's sending him off on impossible missions in the hope that David will be killed by the Philistines. Like, Saul is trying to do everything possible to get rid of David, and it gets so bad that eventually David has to run for it, right? So with the help of Jonathan, his friend, and David's new wife, Michal, who happens to be Saul's daughter, they help David escape the palace through a window and then flee the city. And they pull the classic move, you know, which some of you probably did when you were teenagers, of putting a dummy in the bed to pretend that you're sleeping in it so that it takes Saul a little bit longer to figure out that David has actually left the palace, giving him a little bit of a head start. I'm sure none of you did that, Right? Now, Saul is enraged by this. His anger grows worse and worse, and then he he spends the next several years of his life trying to hunt David down and to kill him, a total waste of his time and resources. His obsession has grown so bad that in the process, he even tries to kill his own son, Jonathan, and at one moment, a truly, truly, truly terrible moment in the life of Saul, he kills... 85 defenceless priests of the Lord and their wives and children because Saul learned that they had given David refuge. I mean, this is a man who's become twisted by anger and fear. And his downward spiral is truly horrific and frightening. And it is very much intended to be, I believe, a cautionary tale for all of us. Anyone here ever watched the series Breaking Bad? Right? It's a similar kind of story how a man makes simple, small choices over a period of time and becomes slowly and slowly transformed into something evil. That's the same story we're experiencing here. Saul has become narcissistic, abusive, and dangerous, and that's understating it. He started out so well, though. If you see where Saul begins, you know he's honoured by the people. He's a great leader. He's good-looking. He's... He's tall of stature. He's a great warrior. People respect him. They honor him. And then he ends like this, as we'll see in a few weeks, oh, in a couple of weeks' time, where it all ends for Saul. He's now consulting mediums. Uh, He's trying to raise the dead through uh, demonic rituals. He's completely separated himself from God, and he ends up committing suicide. How did it come to this for Saul? Well I think the cautionary tale is that it happened in exactly the same way that it could happen for any one of us. For me, for you. It happened because Saul made certain decisions at critical moments in his life that instead of taking him closer to the heart of God, moved him away from the heart of God until he became curved in on himself, becoming completely self-absorbed and afraid of anyone who threatened him. It was one choice at a time, one moment at a time, moving further and further away from God until he has become overtaken by sin and by the devil. And that's why it says in chapter 18 that at a crucial point, when he decides that it's time to kill David, we're told that an evil spirit is sent to Saul from the Lord. Now a few of you, a few of you asked me about this because you found it a little bit confusing. Why is God sending evil spirits? Uh, that doesn't seem right. So if you look at verse 10 and 11, I don't have this on the screen, but if you open your Bibles to chapter 18, look at verse 10 and 11 with me, and we're told that a murderous envy starts to overtake Saul and we read that the next day An evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house like he's starting to go crazy while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Now, first of all, what I want to say is that what's translated as evil spirit here is actually the Hebrew word for harmful, or terrifying. Evil is actually a bad translation of that word. What's going on? Why would God send a harmful or terrifying spirit upon Saul? Now, what's interesting is that nearly all commentators agree on this, and that is that on the one hand, what this is saying is that in the beginning, as with any sin, over time, if you give into it, you eventually lose your ability to do or choose anything else. Are you with me? It starts to take over your personality. It starts to take over your sense of self. And you lose your ability to make decisions outside of the influence of that sin. And there really is, friends, there really is a spiritual element to this. There are forces at work in the world. There are forces at work in our own lives that are trying to enslave us and this is how it happens. Being tempted is one thing giving into that temptation means that the next time you're tempted to do that same thing it will be much harder for you to resist it. The more you give in to greed, the more you give in to envy, the more you give in to lust, any one of the seven deadly sins you make yourself vulnerable to the supernatural forces of evil until you become enslaved by them. And because God honours your free will, He allows you to choose this. And this is God's judgment. And it is a terrifying judgment. He gives you what you most deeply want. He gives you... Now, we often use this verse in the positive, and it is meant to be understood in the positive, but it can also be understood in the negative. He gives you the desires of your heart. So you need to make sure that the desires of your heart are in line with his will and his word. He gives you over to your sins. This is what's happening in the life of Saul. God is giving Saul what he most deeply wants. And this is how God's wrath works, right? Right? This is the wrath of God. Little by little, he allows Saul to be overtaken by the evil that he is giving his heart to. So sin has consequences, friends. We dig a pit of sin, and eventually we fall in. We act in malice, and eventually it returns to haunt us. We employ violence, and eventually it boomerangs back to us. And even though this is the wrath of God, it should not cause us to think that our Father, our Father in Heaven, the Father of Jesus, is somehow vindictive and retributive. Yes, sin has consequences, and sometimes they are truly horrible. But this is the deeper truth, I think, that I'm trying to communicate to you here this morning, is that we are more punished by our sins than for our sins. You with me? We are more punished by our sins, they have their own consequences, than the Father's up there in heaven going, okay, lightning bolt for you every time you screw up. I'm going to punish you every time you make a mistake. No. The mistake itself leads to consequences, which is God's wrath, which is God's judgment. Jesus has made this known to us. Jesus tells us that the Father is kind and merciful, even to the evil and ungrateful. I have this on the screen from Luke 6. Let's read this. and I think this connects in many different ways to the story that we're reading this morning, but few verses from Luke 6, but to you who are listening I say love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, do to others as you would have them do to you. Why? Because when we choose to align ourselves with the heart of God that leads to blessing and to life, right? But if we choose (laughs) to align ourselves with our own desires, with our own Uh, need for revenge or justice, then we can easily move away from God's heart into something else. But love your enemies, do good to them, then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Yes, sin has its consequences, but God's heart toward all of us is that He longs to be kind and merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. This is not about quid pro quo. This is not about earning anything. What this is about is aligning our hearts and our actions with the heart and the actions of God, which leads to blessing, right? In fact, Jesus goes on to say in that same passage, give and it will be given to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over. He's not just talking about money. He's talking about what will happen in your soul if you align yourself with the heart of God. You'll receive God's goodness. You'll receive God's blessing. And it'll be so much that you won't be able to contain it. It'll flow out of you. So align yourself with the heart of God because that is the way of wisdom and blessing and life. Are you with me? This is not about the law. This is not about earning anything from God. This is not about being good boys and girls. This is about becoming like Jesus, aligning ourselves with the heart of the Father, just as Jesus did. If you love me, you will. What? Keep my commandments. Keep my commandments, exactly. So what I want to tell you this morning is that God's attitude toward you No matter what kind of mess you may have made of your life, God's attitude toward you is one of unwavering, unconditional, fatherly love. He loves you everlastingly. He loves you. You have nothing to fear from Him. Let the fear of God then be understood as wisdom, which recognizes the reality as God has created it, has consequences. And the truth is that we live in a consequential universe with a moral arc. But that does not mean that God views us sinners as loathsome insects. No, he loves us. He looks upon us with unconditional love as his sons and daughters and calls, him by his, calls us by his love and his kindness to repentance, which leads to freedom so that we can become the people that he has always longed for us to be. Even Saul, even you, this is the good news. This is the gospel that we proclaim. Are you with me? Is there an amen in the house? So if we want to be the kind of people that emulate the character of Jesus, that emulate the character of Luke 6, able to love and bless our enemies, as David demonstrates here in this moment in his own life, how do we do it? How do we, as the Lord warned Cain in in Genesis chapter 4, When sin was crouching at his door, the Lord said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It wants to take hold of you, but you must master it. How do we master our desires? How do we master our own lives so that we are not overcome by evil? The question is not, in fact, whether we are good or bad, because we're all starting this journey at different points, and we all have different challenges to overcome. So just to talk about good and bad in the abstract is not helpful here Each of us have things in our lives that we need to overcome that have been obstacles to us. Some of us have started, you know, all the way back here in our journey because of the circumstances of life. Others have started all the way here in their journey because of the circumstances of their life. Maybe they had good parents and a good upbringing, lots of opportunity. Someone else might be starting from a point in their life where everything has been against them from the moment they were born. We cannot judge. That's why Jesus says you must not judge because all of us start this journey at different points. And so for me to stand here and I've had a pretty decent upbringing and point my finger at someone who's got so many more obstacles to overcome in their journey of faith than I do would be a gross injustice. Are you with me? So we can't judge because we don't know what is going on in a person's life, what they're struggling with. But that doesn't mean we excuse ourselves from the struggle, right? And those of us who have been blessed should offer ourselves in service to those who have really struggled so that we can help them. We're all brothers and sisters together, right? We're supposed to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who are rejoicing, carry one another's burdens. Why? Because there's no better than or less than in the kingdom of God. There is just the children of God. The issue, then, is what we are choosing to do with what we have. Are you making choices that are drawing you closer to God? Or are you making choices that are sending you further away from Him? And this is where we see the stark contrast between Saul and David, don't we? Saul has been driven to demonic madness by the choices that he has made. And David, in fact, who has far more reason to be bitter, to be resentful, to be angry with God, far more reason to want to take revenge. everything's been taken from him in his life, right? He's on the run and he didn't choose any of that and yet he refuses to allow those things to take him captive and to corrupt his heart. And here's the difference between Saul and David, the one essential difference, and this is the one thing I want you to pay attention to this morning because the difference between these two men is what will make and break a life, what will make or break your life. Saul allows his temptations to lead him away from God. That's what he chooses. But David chooses instead, and this is the thing, David chooses instead in the midst of his frustration, in the midst of his anger, in the midst of his disappointment, in the midst of his resentments, he chooses instead to go to God and deal with those things in God's presence. David's not necessarily a better man than Saul, not more morally perfect, doesn't necessarily have a better character. But the one difference between these two men is that Saul turns in on himself when he's tempted, whereas David turns and opens himself up to God when he's tempted. That's the difference. And we have a whole book of the Bible which shows us how David did that. Do you know what it's called? The Psalms. And they are full of prayers which I would struggle to pray. Lord, crush my enemies. Do evil to them. Kill them. Take them captive. May all of their wrongdoing be visited on their heads. This is the way David prays. And it's okay to pray that way as long as you're dealing with those emotions with God. And not as a fuel for revenge. And that's the difference. David goes to God and works out his worst emotions with the Lord. He works out his desire for for revenge. He works out his desire for vengeance. He works out his desire for violence. With God, he goes to God and he prays through that stuff. And in those moments of prayer, the Lord's able to then work on David's heart and change him and build his character into something beautiful and godly and righteous. Whereas Saul allows those emotions to take hold of his heart and his mind and they twist him and they break him and they turn him into a monster. And that's what we must not allow to have happen in our lives either. Let's just have a look at one example, Psalm 59, I don't have this on the screen but uh, you have your Bibles, just turn with me there or get out your smartphone. I'll just read a few verses, not the whole thing. But this is a psalm which is attributed to uh, the time when David was on the run from Saul. And this is what David prays, deliver me from my enemies, O God, be my fortress against those who are attacking me, deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See, God, how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me, for I no offense or sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they're ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. You, Lord God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. Now I don't know if I've prayed that kind of prayer. Maybe I should. He's getting it out, right, instead of holding it in. Because I reckon if we're actually honest with ourselves here this morning, many of you will have thought these things, (laughs) felt these things, God, I just wish you'd crush that person. I just wish you'd take them out, get them out of my life, punish them. Is it just me or has anyone else ever felt that way? Yeah, we've got a few honest people in in the house today, amen, amen. Better to deal with this stuff that's going on in our hearts and our minds with God than let it fester and become a cancer in our soul, right? Um, They return at evening, snarling like dogs. They prowl about the city. uh, See what they spew forth from their mouths. The words from their lips are as sharp as swords. Now, just go down to uh, the end of the psalm, verse 14. They return at evening, snarling like dogs, prowl about the city. They wander about for food. They howl as if not satisfied. But I, verse 16, I will sing of your strength. In the morning, I will sing of your love. For you are my fortress. You are my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God, on whom I can rely. Now, he got to that place of confidence by working through all of the other stuff that he was feeling in his life, feeling in his heart, yeah? He didn't just go straight there to, yes, Lord, everything's great, I love you, I'm surrounded by your blessing, this is wonderful. No, he got there after dealing with all the other junk. And that's the secret of prayer, that's the secret of worship, that's why getting into the Word of God, showing up to church on a Sunday to worship with your brothers and sisters, Being in prayer is so important. It's not just about earning brownie points with God. Your very soul depends on it. Your capacity to actually step into the character of Jesus depends on the fact when you're tested, right, not when everything's easy, but when you're tested, you can step into the character of Jesus and live as an obedient disciple because you've spent time building into your heart the resources that you will need in order to overcome when you are tested, That's why reading scripture, being in prayer, being in worship is so important. Again, it's not a quid pro quo. It's not about earning anything from God. It's about us shaping our souls so that we can rightfully respond to the Lord and to other people when things don't go well. Are you with me? Now, I've run out of time. Side note here. If you find yourself in a relationship that is abusive or dangerous, as David did here in relation to Saul. What I want you to notice in this moment, I think this is really important because I think people confuse this all the time. David forgives Saul. He also tells Saul exactly what he thinks is wrong about Saul's behavior. But he doesn't hold back, he doesn't just brush it under the carpet. He says to Saul, you are acting in an unrighteous way and it is not right. And I have done nothing wrong to you. So David is very clear about what's going on here. He says what is true. But notice that even though he forgives Saul, he doesn't go back to Saul's palace. Just because you've forgiven someone, and please, if you're in a dangerous relationship or an abusive relationship or you have been in one in the past and you're struggling with this I want you to hear this very clearly just because you've forgiven someone doesn't mean that everything is okay doesn't mean you have to go back into that relationship doesn't mean you have to put yourself back into harm's way David does not go back with Saul into his palace David stays away from Saul because even though Saul says yes I've done wrong I'm sorry. We all know what happens next. Saul goes right back at it just a few weeks later. The forgiveness or the apology only lasts for a little while. But David does not put himself back under Saul's control. He keeps his distance. He sets a boundary. He says, I forgive you, but you're not safe, and I need to stay away. Okay? Is that clear? You can forgive. That doesn't mean you have to forget. God can forget, But it's actually not often a wise thing to forget, even if you have forgiven. Do you understand what I'm saying? Last thing, and then I'm going to pray. This quote from C.S. Lewis, I think, draws this all together very beautifully. It's quite long, but um, I think this was worth the price of admission just to hear this today. It's from Mere Christianity, and he's talking about the difference between our psychological states, how we feel, and our actions. And he writes this. Any bad psychological material we might have is not a sin, but a disease. It does not need to be repented of, but to be healed. And by the way, that is very important. Human beings judge one another by their external actions. God judges them by their moral choices. When a neurotic who has a pathological horror of cats, I can't understand that at all, forces himself to pick up a cat for some good reason, it is quite possible that in God's eyes he has shown more courage than a healthy man may have shown in winning the Victoria Cross. When a man who has been perverted from his youth and taught that cruelty is the right thing does some tiny little kindness or refrains from some cruelty he might have committed and thereby perhaps risks being sneered at by his companions, he may, in God's eyes, be doing more than you or I would do if we gave up, life itself for a friend. It is well, sorry, it is as well to put this the other way round. Some of us who seem quite nice people may, in fact, have made so little use of a good hereditary and a good upbringing that we are really worse than those whom we regard as fiends. And he says, at the end of the age, there will be many surprises as to whom God considers good when we all stand naked, as it were, before the Lord. And that leads to my second point. People often think of Christian morality as a kind of bargain in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I do not think that's the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole, With all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. So today, friends, I invite you to be honest with yourself for just a moment. I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. Can we just close our eyes for a moment and open our hands to the Lord? Just take a moment to deal honestly with God and with yourself. Where are you in your journey of faith? Are you walking away from the Lord or are you walking toward him? And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that God's mercy is in you every morning, amen, that it is his kindness that leads us to repentance, not the threat of judgment, but his kindness. And the Lord longs to be kind to you. He really does, because he loves you. You are his daughter. You are his son. It doesn't matter where you are right now. Today can be a new day. So let's take a moment to just confess our sins, by which I mean confess what's really going on in your life. Bring it before the Lord. How do you actually feel? How have you actually been living? Have you been giving yourself over to envy? Have you been surrendering yourself to lust? Have you been choosing fear over faith? Have you let anger take a hold of your heart? Do you constantly lust for more? You're greedy, never satisfied, always wanting more and more and more. Oh, Father, we thank you that you love us, and you come to each of us exactly as we need today. You come with healing, you come with life, you come with forgiveness. So, Lord, we confess to you that we need freedom from these things. We ask your forgiveness for how we've given ourselves over to them. Come, Holy Spirit, and cleanse us. Cleanse us. As Paul says, God is faithful and just. And if we confess our sins, he forgives us of our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So just welcome the Spirit of God to come and wash you, cleanse you, set you free this morning, give you a new heart and a new mind. And if you don't know Jesus and today you would like to put your faith in him, that's all you have to pray is, Lord, I would like to walk with you. I would like to know you. I I give my life to you. Come and give me a new start with you. I'm going to get the band to play. I encourage you just to stay in this moment of prayer. Some of you may want to even kneel before the Lord. The band will just lead us quietly. Take some time to be with the Lord. Okay. At the end of the service this morning, there's going to be a prayer team uh, up the front here, either side. And they would love to pray for you if you would like prayer this morning. If something has been stirring in you today, if you feel challenged um, or you know there's something in your life that you need to deal with um, or you just want to know the love of God again, I invite you to come on forward just at the end of this song. Let's, um, let's keep waiting on God. Let's sing together.